0: Mr. Justice Stewart delivered the opinion of the court. The petitioner was convicted in the District Court for the Southern District of California under an eight-count indictment, charging him with transmitting wagering information by telephone from Los Angeles to Miami and Boston in violation of a federal statute. At trial, the government was permitted over the petitioner's objection to introduce evidence of the petitioner's end of telephone conversations overheard by FBI agents who had attached an electronic listening and recording device to the outside of the public telephone booth from which he had placed his calls. In affirming his conviction, the Court of Appeals rejected the contention that the recordings had been obtained in violation of the Fourth Amendment, because there was no physical entrance into the area occupied by the petitioner. We granted certiorari in order to consider the constitutional questions thus presented. The petitioner has phrased those questions as follows. a whether a public telephone booth is a constitutionally protected area so that evidence obtained by attaching an electronic listening recording device to the top of such a booth is obtained in violation of the right to privacy of the user of the booth. b. Whether physical penetration of a constitutionally protected area is necessary before search and seizure can be said to be violative of the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. We decline to adopt this formulation of the issues. In the first place, the correct solution of Fourth Amendment problems is not necessarily promoted by incantation of the phrase constitutionally protected area. Secondly, the Fourth Amendment cannot be translated into a general constitutional right to privacy. That amendment protects individual privacy against certain kinds of governmental intrusion, but its protections go further and often have nothing to do with privacy at all. Other provisions of the Constitution protect personal privacy from other forms of governmental invasion, but the protection of a person's general right to privacy His right to be let alone by other people is, like the protection of his property and of his very life, left largely to the law of the individual state. Because of the misleading way the issues have been formulated, the parties have attached great significance to the characterization of the telephone booth from which the petitioner placed his calls. The petitioner has strenuously argued that the Booth was a constitutionally protected area. The government has maintained with equal vigor that it was not. But this effort to decide whether or not a given area viewed in the abstract is constitutionally protected deflects attention from the problem presented by this case. The Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. What a person knowingly exposes to the public even in his own home or office, is not a subject of Fourth Amendment protection. But what he seeks to preserve as private, even in an area accessible to the public, may be constitutionally protected. The government stresses the fact that the telephone booth from which the petitioner made his calls was constructed partly of glass so that he was as visible after he entered it as he would have been if he had remained outside. But what he sought to exclude when he entered the booth was not the intruding eye, it was the uninvited ear. He did not shed his right to do so simply because he made his calls from a place where he might be seen. No less than an individual in a business office, in a friend's apartment, or in a taxicab, a person in a telephone booth may rely upon the protection of the Fourth Amendment. One who occupies it, shuts the door behind him, and pays the toll that permits him to place a call is surely entitled to assume that the words he utters into the mouthpiece will not be broadcast into the world. To read the Constitution more narrowly is to ignore the vital role that the public telephone has come to play in private communication. The government contends, however, that the activities of its agents in this case should not be tested by the Fourth Amendment requirements, for the surveillance technique they employed involved no physical penetration of the telephone booth from which the petitioner placed his calls. It is true that the absence of such penetration was at one time thought to foreclose further Fourth Amendment inquiry. For that amendment was thought to limit only searches and seizures of tangible property. But the premise that property interests control the right of the government to search and seize has been discredited. Thus, although a closely divided court supposed in Olmsted that surveillance without any trespass and without the seizure of any material object fell outside the ambit of the Constitution, we have since departed from the narrow view on which that decision rested. Indeed, we have expressly held that the Fourth Amendment governs not only the seizure of tangible items, but extends as well to the recording of oral statements overheard without any technical trespass under local property law. Once this much is acknowledged, and once it is recognized that the Fourth Amendment protects people and not simply areas against unreasonable searches and seizures, it becomes clear that the reach of that amendment Cannot turn upon the presence or absence of a physical intrusion into any given enclosure, we conclude that the underpinnings of Olmstead and Goldman have been so eroded by our subsequent decisions that the trespass doctrine there enunciated can no longer be regarded as controlling the government's activities in electronically listening to and recording, the petitioner's words violated the privacy upon which he justifiably relied while using the telephone booth and thus constituted a search and seizure within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. The fact that the electronic device employed to achieve that end did not happen to penetrate the wall of the booth can have no constitutional significance. The question remaining for decision, then, is whether the search and seizure conducted in this case complied with constitutional standards. In that regard, the government's position is that its agents acted in an entirely defensible manner. They did not begin their electronic surveillance until investigation of the petitioner's activities had established a strong probability that he was using the telephone in question to transmit gambling information to persons in other states, in violation of federal law. Moreover, the surveillance was limited both in scope and in duration to the specific purpose of establishing the contents of the petitioner's unlawful telephonic communications, Agents confined their surveillance to the brief periods during which he used the telephone booth, and they took great care to overhear only the conversations of the petitioner himself. Accepting this account of the government's actions as accurate, it is clear that this surveillance was so narrowly circumscribed that a duly authorized magistrate, properly notified of the need for such investigation, specifically informed of the basis on which it was to proceed, and clearly apprised of the precise intrusion it would entail, could constitutionally have authorized, with appropriate safeguards, the very limited search and seizure that the government asserts, in fact, took place. Only last term we sustained the validity of such an authorization, holding that, Under sufficiently precise and discriminate circumstances, a federal court may empower government agents to employ a concealed electronic device for the narrow and particularized purpose of ascertaining the truth of the allegations of a detailed, factual affidavit alleging the commission of a specific criminal offense. Discussing that holding... The court in Berger v. New York said that the order authorizing the use of the electronic device in Osborne afforded similar protections to those of conventional warrants authorizing the seizure of tangible evidence. Through those protections, no greater invasion of privacy was permitted than was necessary under the circumstances. Here, too, a similar judicial order could have accommodated the legitimate needs of law enforcement by authorizing the carefully limited use of electronic surveillance. The government urges that because its agents relied upon the decisions in Olmstead and Goldman, and because they did no more here than they might properly have done with prior judicial sanction, we should retroactively validate their conduct. That we cannot do. It is apparent that the agents in this case acted with restraint. Yet the inescapable fact is that this restraint was imposed by the agents themselves, not by a judicial officer. They were not required, before commencing the search, to present their estimate of probable cause for detached scrutiny by a neutral magistrate. They were not compelled during the conduct of the search itself to observe precise limits established in advance by a specific court order. Nor were they directed after the search had been completed to notify the authorizing magistrate in detail of all that had been seized. In the absence of such safeguards, this court has never sustained a search upon the sole ground that officers reasonably expected to find evidence of a particular crime and voluntarily confined their activities to the least intrusive means consistent with that end. Searches conducted without warrants have been held unlawful, notwithstanding facts unquestionably showing probable cause, for the Constitution requires that the deliberate, impartial judgment of a judicial officer to be interposed between the citizen and the police. Over and over again, this court has emphasized that the mandate of the Fourth Amendment requires adherence to judicial processes, and that searches conducted outside the judicial process without prior approval by a judge or magistrate, are per se unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment, subject only to a few specifically established and well-delineated exceptions. It is difficult to imagine how any of those exceptions could ever apply to the sort of search and seizure involved in this case. Even electronic surveillance substantially contemporaneous with an individual's arrest could hardly be deemed an incident of that arrest. Nor could the use of electronic surveillance without prior authorization be justified on grounds of hot pursuit, and of course, the very nature of electronic surveillance precludes its use pursuant to the subject's consent. The government does not question these basic principles, rather it urges the creation of a new exception to cover this case. It argues that surveillance of a telephone booth should be exempted from the usual requirement of advance authorization by a magistrate upon a showing of probable cause. We cannot agree. Omission of such authorization bypasses the safeguards provided by an objective predetermination of probable cause and substitutes instead the far less reliable procedure of an after-the-event justification for the search, too likely to be subtly influenced by the familiar shortcomings of hindsight judgment, and bypassing a neutral predetermination of the scope of a search leaves individuals secure from Fourth Amendment violations only in the discretion of the police. These considerations do not vanish when the search in question is transferred from the setting of a home, an office, or a hotel room to that of a telephone booth. Wherever a man may be, he is entitled to know that he will remain free from unreasonable searches and seizures. The government agents here ignored the procedure of antecedent justification that is central to the Fourth Amendment, a procedure that we hold to be a constitutional precondition of the kind of electronic surveillance involved in this case. Because the surveillance here failed to meet that condition, and because it led to the petitioner's conviction, the judgment must be reversed. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us.